found theology is over, let's get into the Bible and, uh, and talk about where it comes from. John chapter 3, please. Our series is affectionately called The Riches of Divine Grace. We're talking about the things that you believers in Christ already have. And this is within that framework of the things you received when you first trusted in Christ. We're talking about the fact of your new birth. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And everyone knows the story or maybe knows John 3.16 where Jesus said that. But I don't think we always are, are mindful, at least I know I'm not always mindful of the fact that I have eternal life right now. If you have the Son, then you have the life, says 1 John 5. If you have the Son, how do you get the Son? Well, what they, one thing you can't do to get the Son is earn His favor or grace. You can't work it up. You can't forsake your sins enough. You cannot make a commitment to do better enough. You cannot, from your dead status of separation from God, do anything to gain God's favor regarding your sin and the consequent separation from God. The helplessness of the human being before the Creator is perhaps the most important thing to grasp when you look at human history. Our technology is a new way of life that we haven't known in human history for 6,000 years. The electric lifestyle that we have it's our commonplace. It's our norm. We grow up with little kids. We have little plug holders, little, little plug stopper for the safety so the baby doesn't lick the electrical outlet. We grow up with this, and it's unknown in world history. But if you look at technology and what it gives us, it doesn't give us life. It doesn't solve our deepest problems. It doesn't answer our greatest need. It doesn't really help us with the biggest problem we're all facing. Because while the pharmaceutical advances and technologies in the medical field may help us with end-of-life challenges, they are end-of-life challenges. Oh, no, I've got another several years on my medicine. Yeah, just a few several more years on your medicine, and we're all facing the inevitable demise that comes from a decaying body being still yet unredeemed after the flesh. Your body has not been redeemed until the resurrection. And what I'm saying is we have an ancient message that addresses what life is really about. And the people uh, writing these things, John, writing John 3, did not know of the lifestyle that you live now. And apparently that's irrelevant to what you really need. The difference between your lifestyle and the people for the 5,900 years before that lived on a camp out doesn't really matter. That difference is everything to us. I'll prove it to you. I'm not haranguing you with electricity, uh, anti-electricity. Grow out the bottom and uh, turn, turn, off the, turn off the lights. I'm not saying that. But I'm just, let me prove it to you. If we turned off the power now, your life would radically change. Your walk with God would change, but not because anything had changed in God, but because you were now more dependent on Him for your subsistence than you were before, just by virtue of the problem of poverty. The difference between the light switch and not, between electricity and not electricity, is that I believe a difference of, of lifestyle and poverty versus wealth. It really does. Electricity is a, 
a higher standard of living. Just try to spend the summer without any air conditioning down south, or try to live off of wood that you didn't get you, that you, you cut yourself <laughs> with a with a good old saw that you sharpen with a file and all that. Imagine, you know, God doesn't change, but your lifestyle will change. And so I'm trying to bleed a little bit of that goggles of our culture, our lifestyle away, to burn a little bit of that away, to talk about the fact that John knew the Christ, and so he had the life, and you know the Christ, you have the the life. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then your greatest problem is solved. Your physical death and the subsequent judgment for um, whether or not you have the life, whether or not your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Every one of the great white throne judgment is found missing from that Lamb's Book of Life and will be thrown with the devil and his fallen angels into the lake of fire. And whether you know that or not, the truth of, of, the, of the fact of the matter is, it is the greatest problem we all face. The greatest problem we all face. Greater than our physical death, which is a pretty substantial problem. And these two things go together. One is this horror that we have of our physical death because of the, it's not how it should be, the destruction of this frame that was made in God's image. And the greater horror of separation from God for eternity. There's an analogy between your physical death and eternal separation from God. And when we talk about life, you know, it's very easy for me to say, you have eternal life right now. And you say, yes, I do. I trusted in Christ and he gave me eternal life. That we should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16. I know I have the life. I have the Son in 1 John 5. I have the life. I know I have eternal life. And it's easy to say that and to think, and that means that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. After uh, whatever period of time or whenever God so ordains, he's going to resurrect the body of Christ. And we, the church, will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the clouds. And so will we ever be with the Lord in our resurrection bodies, the transformation of this body. It's going to happen. So I have eternal life, and I know I get to be with Jesus forever and go to heaven when I die. And then I rule with Christ for all eternity in his coming kingdom. I know that I have eternal life. But so much of the emphasis of the New Testament on the doctrine of eternal life is what is going on right now. This is the horror to me of American Christendom in the time in which I live. This is the absolute horror and waste. God has put his Holy Spirit into your heart to abide forever. He has you in the circumstance you're in, in enemy territory, under an enemy administration where you are an insurgent against this present darkness. Shedding the light of the gospel in a world that is dominated by darkness, the nations have been deceived by the enemy of God. And you are, sta- you are in this world as an agent of God's agenda. And we so often don't even think of the agenda. We're not even, I don't, I'm just here to get up in the morning and go to work. We don't even know what our life is or what it's for, and so we're not embracing our eternal life. What am I saying? What is it that you have the Spirit of God in you for? Why are you in this life? What is it about? And ask these questions and let them be uncomfortable until you get God's answer. This is an uncomfortable thing to do self-assessment, self-evaluation, to say, what am I actually here for? Some will say, I'm here to grow spiritually. I'm here for spiritual growth. Okay? Others will say, I'm here for portfolio growth. See the number go up. 
Apparently in this market, as you sell short or something, <laughs> playing against the market. But, uh, but the point is that growth isn't an end in itself. Use growth as a noun. I have a growth. That's not a good thing. <laughs> that's, a, that's a language game. But, but seriously, think about the, the growth, spiritual growth as a goal. That's not a goal. That's not a personal relationship. That's a process. And that's the problem of some strains of Bible teaching is that we're going to emphasize process instead of relationship. But the Bible teaches eternal life not as something that you have in the future. It's something that you have now. And it's not really described in terms of your experience of continuing on forever. It's described as your personal relationship with your Creator. We spent a great deal of time in John 17 on this study of eternal life looking at Jesus' definition, John 17, 13. We said that's a very interesting discussion John has to describe eternal life. This is eternal life. They may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. And you could say, well, it means to have eternal life, you have to know God so then you can have eternal life. But I think it's more uh, personal. To have eternal life is to know God. So as you're laying hold of the knowledge of God, as you're seeking Him and knowing Him, and I don't just mean knowing about Him, as you're engaging in a fellowship relationship with God, you're enjoying, embracing eternal life. That's the sense in which you have it now. And I've tried to emphasize that from John 10, that He came that they would have life and that they would have it abundantly. So I want to talk about the enjoyment of eternal life. In John 3, we know in verse 16, he says it several times, just reading in John 3, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him, that's all, everyone who believes, every believing one, in Him shall not perish, but have not everlasting life, but... Ionion, life eternal. For God did not send the world into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Why? What's the standard of judgment? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Right there, you see death versus life. Come into the light, live in the truth, embrace the things of God, embrace God Himself. But you won't. We won't. Why doesn't mankind do this? Their, de- their deeds are evil. They're hung up on what they would prefer to God. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. I'm not afraid that my deeds be manifested if they are works that God has brought forth through me. Let the light shine. And we're talking about sinful people who are not resurrected, who struggle with pettiness, all of us in some way or another, We have breakdowns between other people for petty, selfish concerns. We do. 
We're worried about something. Petty means small, right? It's, like, it's, it's French. Something small. And we're small-minded. And we worry about the wrong things when we have something big, which is the Christ and the life that comes as the knowledge of the Father. We're talking about sinful people who can walk in the light as God himself is in the light. John 3 and 1 John 1 are talking about the same thing. John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The theme of life being offered in this ministry of the gospel by John is taken up by the Lord Jesus as John presents the ministry of the Son in Samaria in John chapter 4. If you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, give me a drink, he says to the Samaritan woman, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water. The idea is that if you drink this water, you will be alive. And if you don't drink this water, it doesn't mean you're in the future going to die. It means that you remain dead. Eternal life is a present reality. And we use other words to describe it like fellowship with God. Walking in the light, abiding in Christ. But it's, it's the present reality that's supposed to be your experience. And that's why Romans 8 says, if you walk according to the flesh, you must die. It's talking about the enjoyment of this life we have. And I'm not saying you lose eternal life. I'm saying that you should enjoy it now. If you knew who, was, was, who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so the woman at the well said, you... You, sir, have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I'll give him shall never thirst, but the water that I'll give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. It doesn't mean that you'll eventually bubble up to the point that you get the eternal life. That's not what the idea of the well. It means that you're a geyser. You have the life. And it's expressed through you and it's your life. And this is our problem with darkness and death. Looking at the Lord Jesus Christ, focusing on Him, engaging in communion with God through the Son is a lifestyle that means the enjoyment right now of the eternal life that is yours. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way back here to draw. And he said, Go, call your husband and come here. And then he starts talking about what John said in chapter 3. The people rejected the light because of their sinful deeds. Their deeds in darkness are going to be exposed by the light. And then we see an example of this happening in the first story John tells, the first of the, of the examples he wants to show in the life of Jesus is the woman has deeds that are dark and the light is sitting right there and exposes them. And it's his right to do it. And Jesus is the light and you are not. We walk in the light as children of the light. We're not the judge of these people and their sins. See, he didn't come to judge. He came to save. But the sin is a problem and that's what needs saved. That's what, that's what is calling for the salvation. And that's why he brings up her husband. See, you have to talk about sin if you're going to talk about salvation because 
He is the Savior from your sin. And this is the absurdity, Christians, is that we embrace sin, is that we, we believe in a neutral space between righteousness and unrighteousness. That we, we want to hide out in that pretend neutral space, and when we look at it and we're honest with ourselves, it's not neutral. It's in unrighteousness. And wherever that lands, let it land. So I perceive that you're a prophet when he called out our sin. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming. We neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship you Samaritans. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews, the people of Judah. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And then she brings up the Messiah and he says, I'm he. Why does Jesus co-locate the problem of life eternal with the streams of living water, with the problem of her sin, we know why, thematically, darkness and death are the choice people are making because their deeds are evil, but the light shines on the, on, on the problem of sin. The light exposes it, which he's done. So she has a need for a savior. That's the problem of sin in the story. But there's more to the, to the motif with eternal life, isn't there? What's the, what, what, what else is there? Before we start talking about Messiah is worship of God. Not in when we go to the temple. Why is that thematically arranged here? Because he's going to tell you that life is to know God, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he sent. This eternal life that springs up with this water that Jesus offers is the relationship that you have with God. Yes, I want you to rejoice in your salvation. I want you to be aware of the things that are yours. But in this instance, in this case of the study of your eternal life, I want you to embrace it. It is yours now, and it is forfeited. The enjoyment of this eternal life is forfeited through personal sin. And I'm picking my words pretty carefully. I'm going to hold my place in John. I'm coming back to John, but I want to go to Matthew 19 and talk about a similar concept to what we're discussing that I think reinforces what I'm saying about eternal life in Matthew 19. Some of you know Matthew 19 speaks about marriage and its permanence. And so you think I'm going to talk about eternal life as the fact that you're stuck with your spouse until death do you part and it seems like eternity because that's what Jesus says in Matthew 19. I love to preach in sermons at weddings. People want me to speak at a wedding. I like to talk about how stuck this is and how permanent it is in the eyes of the Lord Jesus. Because Jesus said, and you know, he didn't know about no-fault divorce in our day. Jesus, uh, who is the author uh, as God himself of marriage, who created womanhood and simultaneously created marriage in Genesis 2. Look it up. What did, why did God create woman? Man needed a help meet. The Shah was created for the Adam to have a helpmeet. That was the whole design and purpose of womanhood, and simultaneously, therefore, God created marriage. You can look it up in Genesis 2, right about verse 18. <clears throat> but in Matthew 19, Jesus talks about marriage and says, uh, Whom God has joined together, 
let no man separate in John or in Matthew 19:6. But that's not the part of Matthew 19 I want to emphasize, but I do want to note it as we go. That in Jesus' eyes, even in this passage, he discusses divorce, which was allowed for adultery in the Mosaic Law. And he does provide in the statement for adultery as a basis for divorce. But he says the condition in which you will get a divorce, you'll divorce your wives under the Mosaic provision in Deuteronomy, is that you have hardness of heart, the person who is unforgiving about the adultery. So even in that case, there's a problem if you're going to go and pull that lever. But... Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And therefore I say to you, verse 9, and whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, that's pornea, that's sexual immorality, and marries another woman commits adultery. And the disciples understood his message. For once they got it. You know, very often as you read through the Synoptic Gospels, you hear the disciples, he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And they're like, did we bring sandwiches? Is there, does everybody have the bread? Or did you remember the lunch basket? And Jesus is like, why are you talking about sandwiches? Well, you said leaven. I'm talking about the wickedness of this Pharisaic deception. Anyway, um, so they misunderstand him a lot of times. But here they got it. Because in John 19.10, the disciples said to Jesus, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. And Jesus is going to certify their idea by saying, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it's been given. So he doesn't say, no, no, marriage is a blessing. Oh, you're going to love it. It is, and you will, if you, if you get it right. Two people not looking at themselves, looking at God and the other, what God wants the other to have, that can be a happy marriage in any case, in all cases. Oh, you don't know what she's like. Oh, if she would just... Forget yourself and trust in God and look at what God wants for you. If you would just forget yourself and trust in God. But, but that's not my topic today. But I want to talk about it more, but I'm not going to talk about it. Jesus says that that's, that's one way to read it, that it's, it's better not to marry. Then verse 13, then some children were brought to Jesus so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. And Jesus said, let the little children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Boy, do we want to own it. What's, what is childlike about the kingdom of heaven? That they pick their noses? No. Um, that they are uh, uh, alternatively cruel and, and kind and, and a whim of like a little kid? Is that Those little boys that were running to Jesus to, that wanted to see him because they were attracted to him, they were probably stomping on ant piles 10 minutes before. Or, or doing some other stupid thing little boys do that um, you perceive as cruel. They might have been mean to each other, as they often are in the playpen. And I know we want to talk about the idyllic little children. Oh, these were the good little children. No, these were children with their little sinful tendencies that have to be trained. And part of growing up is restraining your lust. But Jesus says you've got to become like one of these. In what sense? That they're dirty little grimy kids on the street? No. Childlike faith. God designed children to receive the instruction of their parents so they could know something. And they believe what they're told. And if you tell them that all the people of one particular uh, uh, genetic extraction hate all the people of your genetic extraction, if you tell them from earliest years that everyone of one color hates you because you're the other color, those little children are going to believe that. And you're going to poison their souls about dealing with humans in the world in which we live. 
And if you tell them that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead, they're going to know God for the rest of their lives because they're going to believe what you tell them. And I know there's a theory that says, no, you can't really hold them accountable as little kids when they believe because they don't really understand. They don't really know. Jesus says you have to become like one of these little children to inherit the kingdom. You have to become like a child. Hear the message of the gospel and believe what you're told. We emphasize child evangelism here. With, not with the expectation that they're going to stay the course and grow up to be um, advancing Christians inevitably because of their uh, evangelism as children. They may grow up and die the sin unto death as rebellious Christians that say no to their Creator who bought them with His blood. But they have the life in the sense that they have trusted in Christ and He has them. We talked about the competence of the shepherd in John 10, and that's where eternal security really lies. Not in your faithfulness, or even the faithfulness of your faith, but in the Savior Himself. After His laying hands on the children, He departed from there, and now we have our target. Someone came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? What good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? I want you to notice that Jesus has asked this question in various places in the Gospels, and he answers the question in different ways. What must I do to be saved, says the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, in uh, Acts 16.31, Paul and Silas' remarks. Jesus has words for the rich young ruler, and they amount to, you have to have God's righteousness. And so he says... Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. The entirety of the law was designed by God to showcase man's need. It shows us that we need a Savior because we're hopeless. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said that one of the best avenues to faith in Christ, to salvation, is to try to be a good person on your own. Try to keep all the commandments. Try to do the Romans 2 thing of seeking after life. And only, he said, when we fail, I'm paraphrasing, but only when we fail and we find ourselves you know, face down in the mud of our best efforts are we ready to understand that it is not going to be through our works, it's through God's work, through Christ on the cross. But the rich young ruler has this question, and Jesus does not answer a fool according to his folly. He answers the fool as his folly deserves. He says, why do you ask me who is good? We already know there's a worldview problem, and the issue is self-righteousness. So keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you should not commit murder, adultery, should not steal, should not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Let's look at the specific ones he selected. Murder, adultery, theft, bearing false witness, honoring father and mother, and then he picks something that's not in the Ten Commandments, love your neighbors yourself, Leviticus 19.18. Is that 19.18 or 18.9? I always get it backwards. 19.18, I got it right. So five of the Ten Commandments and one that's not listed as the Ten Commandments that summarizes those five. Elsewhere, Jesus will summarize the law and say, love your God, Deuteronomy 6.4, love your neighbor, Leviticus 19.18. This is the whole law. The first four commandments are what God, man was supposed to do with God under the Mosaic administration, and the last six are what man would do with man for God's sake. Not murder him, not steal from him, not covet, honor your father. They're all relational to humans. 
So the man is self-righteous. He's calling Jesus a good teacher. What do you, what do you mean about good? So that emphasis, I think, points to self-righteousness. And then we're going to talk about how you treat people to the rich young ruler. The young woman, the young man said to him, all these things I've kept, what am I still lacking? Aha, all these things you've kept. This has tripped the wire that showcases, you know, Jesus kind of set a trap for him and the booby trap blew up. The little flares went off on the side of the, of the trip wire and, and big green star cluster. I've kept all of these. Well, this is Matthew and we've read Matthew 5. No, you haven't. If you have called your brother a fool, that's on the same order or the same continuum of hating him or killing him. So you haven't committed murder, but you've sinned in a mental attitude sin toward him. You haven't committed adultery, but you've thought it. Matthew 5, the same book, same context. So, so Jesus has showcased that the man doesn't understand what sin is and the need. One, calling your brother a fool is the lake of fire, Jesus says. One time. And so you don't get it that God's righteousness is something you're not going to execute. You're going to have to have it attributed to you, imputed by God's grace. But this is my interpretation of the rich young ruler, which is a riddle. And I, I think this is the solution to the riddle. All these, these things I've kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And so the idea that people will take away from that, that discourse is that true faith is selling all your possessions and following Jesus, committing your life to follow Jesus, and that that would be the moment of his conversion of his faith and salvation. And my contention is that he would be then able to move forward and hear of the need for faith to receive the life. He would hear all that Jesus said, and he would receive the life through faith. And, uh, and, and Jesus actually looked, I think he looked at this person's specific circumstance and said, this is what is shackling you from hearing me. This is what's keeping you, uh, what's got you blinded. And so let's get rid of that and then come and follow me. That is the best thing that could have happened to the rich young ruler. And it's a great challenge to everyone that reads it thereafter. I believe Matthew is written to a Jewish Christian readership. I don't think it's written to evangelize unbelievers. It's written to reinforce and edify believers. It's a challenge for everyone that reads it. Would I give up all my possessions if Jesus told me to? He didn't just tell you to. I hope you know that. He didn't just tell you to give up all your possessions. He told this man to do it. Had you been, this is history, were you standing there and Jesus said this to you, would you hesitate? Or would you not, knowing what you know of who he is, would you not say, marketplace, uh, Craigslist, how do we do? I need to call someone, I'm going to put them in charge, let's get this done. See what I mean? Like, get rid of it. What if Jesus asks for you to come with him? I've got to go bury my father. Are you kidding? See, you Christians, we believers in Christ and the Messiah of Israel are supposed to listen to his words here and say, this is a no-brainer. And then we're also supposed to say, it is conceptually a no-brainer, would I really do it? It's a great challenge to us. <laughs> yes, I would choose to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ in that day and just do whatever he asked me to do. Next question, are you a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ in your day? Are you making that move in your life? 
where Hebrews 12 says, get rid of the entanglement, get rid of the sin and anything that ensnares you, and run the race with endurance that's been set before you? Or are you just all shackled up and encumbered and failing to run as you're called to run or walk with your Savior as he is giving you his life moment by moment in fellowship with him? When the young herd man, when the young herd man the statement, when the young man heard the statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You've all probably heard it. The theory that there was a, a, a gate called the eye of the needle, and it was a very narrow gate, and a camel could not go through no, we don't know of this. This is not archaeology. This is the conjecture someone had, and we let it sound good. The, the illustration Jesus makes is an actual camel and an actual physical sewing needle. And so, easier. So, when you, in other words, what do we call that? Let's be American and uh, educated. Impossible. That's what he's saying. He's using artistic language, he's figurative. God's an artist. But he's saying it's impossible for wealthy people to enter the kingdom. Well, the worldview of the health and wealth gospel comes to the fore in the next statement because the health and wealth gospel, which is an idolatrous repudiation of the gospel of grace, the health and wealth gospel isn't new. It's been with us all along. God favors the wealthy. Obviously, that's why they're rich. We don't know why God does the distribution but I'll take Bob Cratchit's life and attitude and his family over what Ebenezer Scrooge enjoys. I'm talking about wealth and poverty. Now, that's a fictitious story, but it's a theme that we see through history. Look what happens. The disciples heard that the wealthy man could not enter the kingdom. They were astonished and said, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. So you're brought to the end of your resources. That's what eternal life is. It's God's resources. It starts with faith in Christ from a, a message that you didn't write and you didn't bring to your understanding, but God did. And as you trust in Christ as your Savior, you receive this eternal life, this relationship with God, this knowledge of Him that's a personal knowledge that you enjoy through engaging with him in fellowship, and it's the grace of God from beginning to end. And so the next thing is the disciples and the question of eternal life. Peter said to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, who was he talking to? His disciples, who are they? They're the writers of what we're reading. They're the authors from God's use in these, of the human authors of God's scriptures for the church in this new work called the, um, the church age. And they are writing these things, Matthew, for a Jewish Christian readership between the years of 45 and 65 A.D., more than a decade after the resurrection and ascension of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit to begin building the church composed of Jew and Gentile. Matthew is writing this for a Jewish Christian audience that has the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is talking to these men before they receive the Holy Spirit. And that's the challenge people have with the Gospels.
when they start looking at the fact that we have the Spirit now. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration. What's the regeneration? The regeneration is the recovery. It's the um, new life, not just to your spirit, but to your body and to the creation. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, not after the ascension at the right hand of the Father, in the coming kingdom on earth He's describing. You also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. We've left everything, Lord, what's for us? You're going to rule. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or farms, for my name's sake, will receive many times as much, and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. This message is not to redefine faith as giving up everything to serve Jesus. It's really not. This message is to the disciples. When he puts this challenge to them, they are his disciples who say, we've done what you told the rich young ruler to do. We've done it. We're following you with our lives, and it's everything to us. What will there be for us? You're going to rule with me in the coming kingdom. And you'll inherit eternal life. John doesn't, I'm sorry, Matthew doesn't tell you this so that you will say, well, when I first believed as a little kid, it didn't take. It's to say that there's more to eternal life than I believed in Christ and I received eternal life. There's living it, there's inheriting it, there's coming into the, the kingdom of Christ and the full expression of that eternal life in a resurrection body. And to, to put this in its context, I have to read John chapter 6 with you just a little bit. In John chapter 6, 42, they were saying, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is a description of receiving eternal life and enjoying it on the last day. Coming to Jesus, the Father having drawn you to him. And he'll raise that person up, you and me, on the last day. It was written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Or was that written in the prophets? In Isaiah 54 and Jeremiah 31. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. What does John 6.46 have to do with John 6.47? I've seen the Father, and I am the way, the truth, and the life coming to offer it, the life to you. He who believes has eternal life. It's to know the Father through the Son. It's the constant offer. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of this world is my flesh. So I'm going to die for your sins on the cross is what he's alluding to. He says he gives gives life through his flesh. 
Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. And if Jesus meant cannibalism here, then the response of the crowds would have been accurate. Let's go. Let's flee. He's talking about eating the meat with its blood. But he's not. He's using a strong metaphor that asks the question, are you sympathetically listening to me? Are you listening to understand? Or are you listening to contradict? Jesus does this all the time. The, the scriptures do this all the time. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I, and, and I, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. He says it, he's done it twice now, two rounds like John will often narrate. Ugh. To eat and drink and live is the deal. And the communion meal is the Son, fellowship with God through the Son. And this is eternal life, that you would know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. And you have this life by God's gift when you first trusted in Christ. And you are called from then on to live it, to enjoy it, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, we all want to take John chapter 6 and say there was a point at which I didn't believe and then I did believe. And that's what we're talking about. I ate. I took on faith the Son. And you did. There was a point where that happened. But here's the challenge, believers. Your life is fellowship with God through the Son. Are you continuing to enjoy Him? Are you continuing to draw near to him? Are you continuing to abide in the vine? Because that's part of the message of life. Not just that I have it positionally and I'm in Christ, so I have his life, but that I'm living this life because he's empowered me to do so. These things Jesus said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement, who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious of his disciples, grumb, uh, that is grumble, that is Disciples grumbled at this, said, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Well... As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And the challenge is, are they not believers? Did they not initially believe and become disciples? A disciple doesn't necessarily mean a believer. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, if the disciples have already believed in him, and they have eternal life, and that's how it works, that if you have the Son, you have the life, then why do they need to keep walking with him? See, that's the thing, believers. You have the life. The Father is a, is a very competent shepherd. The Son is a competent. Nothing will snatch you out of His hand. But are you living it? Are you enjoying this that is your birthright? 
from your new birth. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, that I might not, I myself not choose you, twelve, and yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So they understand Jesus comes with the words of life, and they understand that the life comes through him. But that verse that we read, verse 47, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Is not simply a statement of initial faith, initial faith that I believed and now I have the life. It is a statement of enjoyment of that life going forward. The Matthew 19 challenge to discipleship of leaving everything to follow Jesus, of living the life in faith, walking with him, of enjoying that life and inheriting eternal life, that could be misconstrued by some as the faith alone in Christ's gospel, that if you trust in Jesus, that means that you're at the same moment giving him everything and submitting all that you are to him so that your act of submission and donation is the basis for your faith, for for your life. And John Calvin said that the faith that saves is never alone. He would say it always is attenuated or accompanied, sorry, by these works. But if we watch the scriptures, Jesus is talking to his believing disciples about the life that they're living and the death physically they're going to die, generally as martyrs for him, the life of witness and suffering. And it is not about whether they have believed, it's whether they go on in faith and walk in the life that he's marked out for them. What I'm trying to challenge you with today is the places in the New Testament that talk about eternal life as something you have now, and it is your choice to live, and we in America often forfeit. Earlier on in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled after he fed the crowds. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. (laughs) Which the Son of Man will give you in verse... For, For on him the Father God, the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God to receive the eternal life that you're offering? What are the works? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. In Matthew 19, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Get rid of everything and look at the law and see your sin, which is the step towards trusting in Christ as your Savior. The rich young ruler never got there. The disciples were already there. In John chapter 6, the work you do to receive eternal life is to believe in him whom God has sent. And Jesus, the bread of life, is asked, what, what sign? He's the manna. What's my challenge to you? That you can live a life of functional spiritual death, according to Romans 8, and yet have positionally eternal life. And you can be a walking contradiction all your life. To walk after the flesh is a functional death. And it is not God's fault, despite the fact that he's sovereign, that you choose to say no to him consistently. It is on you. 
the, the, and a lot, of, a lot of us will live foolishly under that competency of the shepherd that nothing will snatch us out of his hand. And so we, so we, we want to test that to its limits and see what that will do. A lot of conscientious believers will say there must be something wrong in the theology here to say that if you're once saved, you're always saved. What I'm telling you is that you have the eternal life, but if you're not living it, you're not enjoying it, and you're wasting the precious gift of life that God has given you. What's the consequence of that? There's a forfeiture of rewards. There's a judgment that's coming that won't turn out to your liking, and you'd have to believe that for that to help you be motivated. My appeal to you from the scriptures is that the life that God offers you in terms of walking and dependence and faith in Him and dependence on Him, walking in obedience with Him, is far greater and higher and better than anything you could get with any alternative. And I believe that with all my heart. My challenge, if you believe it, let's walk accordingly. Let's enjoy the life. Father, we thank you for this eternal life we've thought about today. The fact that we have it now calls from us certain responsibilities. Father, we, we fall short because we don't trust you. It's a lack of faith that produces a lack of performance. So often our conduct doesn't match our convictions, and so often we take a break from reflection on our convictions, and don't let it be so here at Preston City Bible Church, Father. We want to live this life that you've given us to its fullest. Jesus came. They would have life and have it abundantly. Let us enjoy that abundant life of walk by your spirit, abiding in your son, bearing the fruit of the spirit and the character of your son to a world that is in desperate need of answers and generally not asking for them. We, we, we beg it of you in Christ's name. Amen.